World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer, and we've got a special episode for you with a transport connection. From the farthest reaches of France's rail network, to the film Titanic and its prophecies about climate change, to the very last 747 jet to roll off the line. It's a lot of nautical and notional miles to cover, so let's start by going fast. France's network of slick, speedy trains is well-known, but not all railway services in France are equal. Our correspondent Sophie Pedder has been on an odyssey, discovering what the country's train system tells us about its political divides. As the Economist Paris bureau chief, I spend a lot of time travelling around France on trains. Luckily for me, France is host to some of the best high-speed railways in Europe. These trains are known as the TGV. A trip from Paris to Lyon, 250 miles away, takes just two hours. If you want to travel to see your family in Bordeaux, you can make the 310-mile journey in just over that time. The TGV in France is incredibly popular. Each year, the SNCF, the National Railway, says that over 100 million people take it. But the thing is that while the cities around France are well served by the TGV, big swathes of the country are critically underserved and they are left at the mercy of these old-fashioned, neglected railway lines. I wanted to find out what that other side of French transport was like. And so it was time for a journey. So here I am at the Gare d'Austerlitz in Paris. I have just crossed the River Seine to get here as the sun was rising on a Thursday morning. I'm heading for Bussel in the centre of France and arguably the most difficult place to get to by train. And when I look at the indicator board here, I can see that all the trains are indeed heading south. And the one I'm going to be boarding is going to Toulouse, which is, if you went all the way to Toulouse in the southwest of France, it's uh, about 650 kilometers from Paris. But none of these are fast trains. So let's see how long it takes to get there. It takes about three hours to get to Marseille on the Mediterranean coast from Paris. But Ussel will take me more than twice that time, despite being only half the distance, or 300 miles away. So the first train I needed to take was the train to Brive-la-Gaillarde. It's on one of the two remaining non-TGV lines which run north-south through central France. 
I set off on Paris on the one that goes through Brive and Limoges all the way to Toulouse. The railway carriage was a veritable museum piece designed in the 1970s when Valérie Giscard d'Estaing was president of France. The carriage I travelled in was made up of a long corridor with small compartments leading off it in which six seats faced each other. There was no buffet car, just a carriage attendant who wheeled a trolley down the aisles. À bord de ce train destination de Toulouse-Matapio, nous desservirons les gares désobrées, Château, la souterraine. The first train I needed to take was the train to Brive-la-Gaillarde. Compared to taking the TGV, this journey felt really long. It wasn't exactly the best workstation either. I had to perch my laptop on my knees, which were right up against those of the lady sitting opposite reading a book. It really does illustrate the two-speed system of trains in France, something many people in poorly served areas are really frustrated by. The French government doesn't know about this problem, and in fact, part of its policy is to try to get people off the roads and to get them to use the trains more in France. But it realizes now that it can't just do this by building more TGV lines or getting more people onto the TGV. Those trains are already saturated. So what it is doing now is investing a lot more money into the smaller branch lines, the slow trains, 3 billion euros are going just into these two train lines that go down through the centre of France. And that, I think, is part of its push to have a more environmental transport policy in France. After nearly four and a half hours, I finally arrived in Brive. It's a handsome small town with a very strong rugby tradition in the middle of a rural area of France called La Corrèze. From Brive, I needed to find the train to Ussel. It's at the end of a small branch line and there are only three direct trains heading there from Brive a day. Changing trains, I jumped onto one of them. It was made up of a single carriage, so short that I had to run down the platform to get on it when it pulled into the station. Well, I managed to get on it and I found myself on a single carriage train from Brief to Ussel. It's actually pretty nice. It was shiny, it was comfortable, and it clearly was brand new. Very few people were on it. There was one woman who had a cat in a pet carrier on her back, and a couple of young people jumped on at the same time that I did. But other than that, I was pretty much alone. It's actually pretty amazing that you sell with only 9,000 people, which lies on this remote plateau in rural France, has its own train station. There are eight direct trains a day to Limoges and five to Brive if you include the ones where you have to make a change. But the problem is that most people in Ussel actually use their cars to get around. 
85% of households in Usel own at least one car, and four-fifths of journeys to work are by private vehicle. It's quite a common pattern across France. Countrywide, an average of 74% of the French use their car to get to work. Eventually, I pulled in at about three in the afternoon to this quaint little town. Right, well, here I am in Ussel. I've made it. It is the very end of the track, right in the middle of central southwestern France. It's taken me about seven hours to get here from Paris with one connection in a town called Brive-la-Gaillarde. And the time it's taken me to get here from Paris is about the same as it would have done to get all the way by TGV to Marseille and back again. But I made it. Well, the station has hardly changed since it was built in 1880. I looked up at old photographs of it and it looked exactly the same. I had to step over the tracks in order to cross to the platform opposite. And in between the railway lines, there were tall weeds and grass growing everywhere. I've travelled all over France and I know a lot of the big cities that are connected by TGV to Paris pretty well, places like Bordeaux or Lille or Marseille. But this is a very different sort of France. You really do feel remote when you're wandering around the town. A lot of the shops are boarded up. And it does illustrate, I think, the divide between the France that's connected by high-speed trains and those areas of remote regional France where there's a sense of, of neglect. This divide has political repercussions too. In 2018, there was an uprising called the Gilets Jaunes, the people who wore these high-vis yellow jackets, who were protesting against a rise in the carbon tax on motor fuel. These are people who depend on their cars to get around every day. They felt that their budgets were being squeezed and they felt that they were completely misunderstood by the governing class in Paris, where, of course, there is the metro and public transport and people don't use their cars every day. In fact, at the final round of the presidential election in 2022, people in cities that are linked to the TGV voted overwhelmingly for Emmanuel Macron. But people in rural areas voted disproportionately for the nationalist far-right candidate, Marine Le Pen. But these divides have highlighted bigger problems in France, particularly in rural parts. And better slow trains to such places may well prove more useful than more fast trains that bypass them altogether. After my stay in Ussel, there was only one way out. Another seven-hour journey back to Paris, and another change, this time in Limoges. But it was time to go, and so I hopped back on the train. peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. 
And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the king of the world! I'm the king of the world! Those are words etched into the memories of virtually anyone who was around in the 1990s. Andrew Miller is The Economist's culture editor. Of course, it's the ecstatic cry of Jack from the blockbuster film Titanic. Released 25 years ago, directed by James Cameron, the movie was the most expensive ever made. But before its release, there were a lot of doubts about how it would fare, given its then little-known stars and the glum storyline. Instead of sinking, though, it became a cultural phenomenon. Titanic was the first movie to earn a billion dollars and won 11 Oscars. At the awards ceremony, which in those days people still watched, just like Jack in the story, Mr. Cameron crowns himself World King. I'm the king of the world! (laughs) Now, James Cameron's triumphant film may be the best-known adaptation of the Titanic story, but it was very far from the first. A silent short came out just a month after the disaster in 1912, starring a real-life survivor. An insane Nazi propaganda version was shot during the war on Joseph Goebbels' personal orders. The Titanic zinked. The Titanic zinked? The Titanic zinked. (laughs) (laughs) Then in 1958, there was A Night to Remember. The film was a moving piece of storytelling, and it overlaps with Titanic in many scenes and motifs. What is it? Iceberg, sir. Stop engines. Stop engines. Most strikingly in both films, the band plays on, as it did in real life. Then the musicians say their sad farewells. It's the end, boys. We've done our duty. We can go now. And then they play on again. Yet, for all this competition and the many clichés, It's Titanic, the film of 1997, that rules the waves. For example, a quarter of a century on, people are still arguing on the internet over whether, in the finale, Jack could have squeezed onto that bit of wooden debris, widely assumed to be a door, with Rose. And a few years ago on The Late Show, Kate Winslet, who plays Rose in the film, reenacted that scene with Stephen Colbert to try to resolve this issue once and for all. Promise me, Rose. Promise me this, Rose. What? You'll let me get up on that door with you. Come on, darling, there's room for two. Looking back on it today, the appeal of Titanic goes beyond the lavish sets and the special effects, or even Leonardo DiCaprio's cheekbones. One thing that makes the movie so appealing is that Mr Cameron essentially sneaked two films into one three-hour movie. Now, the first part magnifies a banal experience to a grand scale, one of cinema's favourite tricks. On board the grand ship, an unlikely duo come together. Facing a stifling future, the posh, slightly annoying teenage heroine Rose, played by Miss Winslet, meets a boy from the wrong side of the tracks, Jack. 
I'm Jack Dawson. Rose do with big hair. Happily for all his rough edges, Jack is charming and he's also an artist. Rose is wooed and before long he's drawing her like one of his French girls. Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. Wearing this. All right. Wearing only this. Their high-speed romance culminates in a steamy hookup on the back seat of a car and perhaps the most famous palm to have ever streaked down the side of a foggy window. Alas, right after the earth moves, disaster strikes in the form of the iceberg that scrapes along the bow. The lower decks flood and the romance is submerged in an action movie. Watching the film today, the computer-generated imagery that seemed so futuristic in 1997 already looks old-fashioned. Nevertheless, in some ways, this now old story feels like a prophecy for the future. I couldn't help but think of how the Titanic story mirrors what may be the main challenge facing humanity today. Of course, all disaster flicks in some way prefigure the end of the world, but Titanic eerily reflects the contours and ticking clock of the climate change emergency. Think about it. First, the warnings of an imminent yet slowly approaching danger are ignored. By the time it's properly acknowledged, it's impossible to avoid. In much the same way, weaning the global economy off fossil fuels in time to avoid a climate calamity has proven almost impossible. Now, in the film, the ship has a big gash along its side and the water starts rising through the decks and the catastrophe unfolds in stupendous action. Even though the ship itself is doomed, though, the characters still have choices to make. There is still time just about to act. And that's roughly the situation in which the world now finds itself in respect to climate change. Confronting the unthinkable, some of the characters in Titanic turn away for as long as possible. They prefer inertia and familiarity to the daunting unknowns of action. As a result, they drown in their tailcoats or beds. The rest face the urgent need to save themselves. But they face harrowing choices. They must decide who to rescue, themselves, their loved ones, or perfect strangers, and how to go about it. For their part, Jack and Rose, after a kind of aqueous Indiana Jones involving handcuffs, axe swings, and a shoot-up in the deluxe dining room, choose to rescue a small boy. Right, come on! Happily, his dad turns up quickly so he doesn't become too much of a burden. Above all, just as is the case in climate change, the characters in the movie face the challenge of working together across classes and nationalities. Much the same is seen at virtually every climate summit, where developed countries, which have caused the bulk of historic emissions, rarely see eye to eye with the developing countries that often suffer the most from climate change. Now, in Titanic, the class struggle is demonstrated by Cal, the baddie, played by Billy Zane. There are, of course, too few lifeboats to save all the passengers, and Cal tries to pay his way onto one of them. Got a deal, Cal! Women and children only! Any more women and children? 
It doesn't quite work out, but the rich do fare better than the poor in steerage in the movie, just as they did on the real-life Titanic in 1912. James Cameron, the director, has himself noted how this skewed death toll, with the rich surviving in a much higher proportion than the poor, parallels the unequal impact of climate change. The rich, after all, have access and advantages that the poor simply don't. In the film, as on board the real ship, most of the passengers in steerage don't make it. As for Jack and Rose, after the Titanic finally goes under, they manage to find a floating piece of wood left over from the wreckage. Rose climbs onto it and lies shivering in the cold, and Jack holds onto her from the water, telling her to never let go. Help, he tells her, is coming. It's getting quiet. It's just going to take a couple of minutes to get the boats organized. <sighs> but by the time a rowboat approaches, Jack has perished. Rose is devastated, but she's buoyed by his last words. This being Hollywood, she swims away, finds a whistle, and manages to get herself rescued. Off she goes into a new liberated life. Every film that's based on a historic event is liable to change the facts for the sake of storytelling. In the case of Titanic, one of the most important tweaks to the factual record lies in something it leaves out. On the night the Titanic sank, another ship, the SS Californian, was close by in the water. Its wireless operator was asleep. The film, though, glosses over this agonising detail in order to concentrate the drama on the doomed liner. And from a metaphorical point of view, too, the omission is apt. Because in the real warming world, no outside help is possible. The heroes and villains are all on board with us. In the face of climate change, we are all Rose and Jack. On December the 6th, the last ever 747 rolled off Boeing's production line. Bill Ridgers is our Asian news editor. And it was really felt like the end of an era. The 747 was the sort of iconic queen of the skies, the 1960s heyday of aviation. And really the 747's demise has been slow and a little bit undignified. There's only 30 747s have been ordered over the past five years, and they've all gone to cargo firms who run cargo operations. There's been no passenger planes since one was sold to Korean Airlines in 2017. And so for those who you know associate this plane with aviation's heyday, it, it feels like the end of an era. The mostest of everything describes the new giant of commercial aviation, the Jetliner 747. Contrasted with great conventional aircraft, the 747 will carry 490 passengers. This is more than double current capacity. 
Its engines will be twice as powerful. Back in 1966, Boeing had this vision for a new passenger plane, a giant of the skies, really, a twin-aisled plane that had never really been seen before that could, could carry more passengers than any passenger plane that had, had gone before it. And it started building these 747s. And really, the buzz about the plane spread all around the world. It wasn't just an American phenomenon. It brought that plane, the 747, into operation in 1970. The first route was flown by Pan Am between JFK in New York and London Heathrow. A new era in air travel was begun by the introduction of the Boeing 747, a giant jet... The market that the Boeing 747 was launched into was a strictly regulated one. Airlines were restricted on where they could fly, what routes they could fly, how often, and also the prices that they could charge for their tickets. And charter flights, discount fares and family excursion plans make it possible each year for almost a quarter of a billion passengers to fly. And to make matters worse, in 1973... Along came the oil shock, and so the price of flying these four-engined, gas-guzzling planes kind of went through the roof. If you need assistance, please and it weren't helped by the fact the recession that, that the oil shock caused meant it, it was much harder for airlines to fill up all of those new seats that the Boeing 747 offered them. But in 1978, there was a turning point... America deregulated its aviation market and that gave rise to new opportunities for the airlines to experiment with new business models. People Express is probably the only airline in the world that charges for soft drinks. 50 cents, half a dollar for a fizzy drink or juice. And in particular, they stumbled across the hub and spoke model and what this essentially means is that Airlines would fly huge planes stuffed full of passengers like the 747 into their big home airports and then decant them onto smaller planes. And this meant that airlines could serve many more destinations with fewer planes. And the 747 became absolutely central to this, this model of working. To secure its place in this system, in 1988, Boeing launched the 747-400, which could fly further than its predecessors and it could carry more people. And for the next decade and a half, this was the airliner that carriers wanted in their fleet. During the 2000s, the Boeing 747 really squeezed from both above and below in a competitive sense. So in 2007, Airbus, which is Boeing's great European rival, launched the A380, which is a double-decker giant of a plane. It's the largest passenger plane that's ever been made. Carries up to typically 615 passengers. And it started a trend for these new so-called super-connector airlines, such as Emirates and Qatar, who built their business models around the A380. Airways is now the recipient of a truly magnificent aeroplane, the largest aircraft that has ever been built in human history. That if this aeroplane exceeds its performance, what we expect, 
Yes, then Qatar Airways will have appetite for additional order of the Airbus A380. It's interesting, you know, Emirates currently operates 118 A380s, but not a single 747. All of which meant that an ailing queen of the skies was really already on her deathbed by the time the pandemic came along and killed her off. Yet the future of big passenger planes has begun to look a little brighter than it did before COVID-19 struck, even if the 747 will no longer be among their number. And the reason for that really is that after the pandemic, leisure travellers have taken to the skies a bit more readily than business travellers. And whereas business travellers will pay a premium for a last-minute flight at a convenient time, leisure travellers are much less lucrative, but they book far in advance and they are much less concerned about the convenience of their flights. And this means that carriers can sort of once again order these huge planes and stuff them full of holidaymakers. And that has the potential to bring us full circle back to that first jumbo jet that rolled off the production lines in Washington State in the 1960s. All of which means that while the Queen of the Skies may be dead, her empire will live on. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.